Hello there, and welcome to this COVID Conversations podcast from the Trainees and Member Committee of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. My name is Paolo Dagenso, and I'm a CT1 in Internal Medicine in East London. Today, I have here with me Gemma Proudfoot Jones, an academic FY2 in Liverpool, and David Ryan, an academic FY2 in Southwest London. Hello there, guys, and welcome. Hello. So, the COVID 19 crisis means that we need more medical staff, and we need them with quite short notice. So interim FY1 posts have been created for final year medical students who have just finished their finals and could get provisional registration from the GMC a little bit early. The whole aim of this scheme is to enable interim FY1s to start at the very early, uh, at the earliest opportunity once they're qualified and have registration. It was indeed for me a big significant leap forward and I'm sure this is, you know, can be generalized to any medical student becoming a junior doctor. I think in these days, this leap forward from medical school to uh, the foundation program will probably be a little bit more daunting. So there is quite robust uh, guidance released from the UK, uh, UK Foundation Program Office to make sure that these foundation interim doctors are well looked after. We hope that this little podcast provides uh, medical students about to start the interim FY1 post with the extra bits of advice that they need to be successful in their post from somebody who has been in that post not that long ago. So the number one thing that comes to my mind is the jobs list. There's a number of ways to keep this, but one of the F1s in my last placement actually showed me a really effective method of doing it by categorising types of jobs rather than by a patient. So the, the first category to put at the top of your list are urgent jobs. So these will be things that are going to put patients at risk if they're not done as soon as possible. The second thing would be discharges, TTOs, discharge letters, and arranging follow-up for patients that are going home today. The third thing would be prescribing jobs. These are changes to drug charts that are usually quite quick and can be done while on the ward round. The fourth thing is investigations to request. The fifth thing would be telephone calls to make. This might be discussions with specialties like microbiology or radiology or other specialties. And then the last thing that goes at the very bottom of your list are things that don't need to be done right now, but they're important to have in place for tomorrow. For example, bloods that need to be put out for tomorrow's phlebotomy round. I would say that we can all agree that learning how to prioritise is one of the most important skills uh, that an FI1 doctor needs to have. Uh, it's not easy at the beginning, but by the end of the year, it should really be second nature. I agree with all those points and I think uh, putting acutely unwell patients at the top of the list is kind of the number one priority um, and then similarly putting time critical tasks after that and these are tasks that if there was a delay it would impede further actions later on during the same working day so for example you know referrals to specialties for same day inpatient review this should be made earlier on in the day because you can't get that to happen uh, later on in the afternoon or for example if a patient needed a puncture today, um, at the end of the ward round, their clotting would need to be sent right now. Otherwise, that lumbar puncture would not go ahead later on in the day. And kind of extending the prioritization skills for on-call shifts. So I like to have two lists. So one jobs list for incoming bleeps and tasks that might be handed over from other teams. And then I have a second list where I start to plan, over, plan you know, what I would like to hand over. Um, so, for example, if I take bloods, I might want um, a colleague later on uh, taking over my shift to chase these results. 
So I kind of think about things that I'll need to hand over as I go through the shift. And it kind of avoids a rush at the end of thinking about things that I need to hand over. Right. Yeah, I think that's actually a very good point. I wish I had been doing that as an FY1. I wasn't. So uh, when I think of medical handover for when uh, I was an FY1 doctor, and that's true for Gemma as well, because we were working in the same busy teaching hospital in Liverpool. It was a large room with a very long, long table and uh, incoming uh, our shift colleagues would be sitting on the other side. And it was horrendous. It was, you know, just coming in in that room meant like sitting in front of a panel judging the quality of your work during your shift. Um, do you guys have any tips on how to go about dealing with medical handover? So I think SBAR is definitely the way to go. You're probably already familiar with that from medical school, but it stands for Situation, Background, Assessment and Recommendation. And to give an example of that, you know, you could say I, I would like to discuss, for example, John Smith and always make sure you give a hospital number because other teams would want that as a kind of central reference point. He's a 65-year-old gentleman. Uh, so the situation is um, I was asked to see him on a COVID ward half an hour ago because of a drop in his saturations. And in terms of his background, he was admitted two days ago, has tested positive for COVID, and has so far required two litres of oxygen and via nasal cannula to maintain uh, acceptable saturations. Uh, when I assessed him, his respiratory rate was 45. He was using accessory muscles. His stats on two litres were 83%, but this improved to 90% on a 60% venturi mask. ABG showed type 1 respiratory failure. The PO2 was 8.2 on 60% venturi mask. So I've asked for a repeat chest x-ray to be done that, and that would need to be chased. I appreciate if the night team would kind of do a further clinical review this evening. Uh, so that's kind of an, an example of a, of a quick SBAR. And you'll get used to sort of anticipating what further questions they might ask at this point. So, for example, does Mr. Smith have any significant comorbidities? Has his escalation status been decided on admission? Would he be for CPAP or escalation to critical care? And what's the plan if his chest x-ray doesn't show any worsening pneumonia? Should he have an urgent CTPO overnight to exclude a PE? A further aspect to kind of consider with handover is if you're on the incoming shift side of the table, make sure you know who you can contact for advice later on in the shift. So introduce yourself to the SHO, introduce yourself to the med reg, have contact numbers bleep numbers and know who is there to escalate your concerns to and know where they're going to be for the rest of the shift so you can kind of find them if you really, really need to find them. It's particularly relevant for people who are working in bigger hospitals where staff are continuously changing and you mightn't know the seniors that you're expected to seek help from. Yeah, very good point. So as well as uh, medical handover at the end of, the, of uh, the shift, I would say that a huge part of working as FY1 is to discuss and refer cases to members of different specialties. Um, for example, you will need to speak to a radiologist to get uh, the CT or an MRI approved, or you will need to speak to a microbiologist to clarify what uh, is the best antimicrobial treatment for a patient, for a complex patient. Yeah, so I would always make a few notes before talking to them to make sure that, firstly, I was clear on the details of the patient's background and their admission, and secondly, that I knew exactly what questions I needed to be answered. Um, so when having a discussion on the phone, I'd always have the patient's notes and drug charts in front of me, so I had all the information readily available. And I'd make sure that I'd sort of covered all the basics so you sound competent on the phone. So that might be things like making sure you've got an ECG, you've ordered the chest x-ray, 
urine dip, VBG, ABG bloods, etc. Yeah, I think that's extremely important is to have all that information ready. And the other thing, and it's kind of something that you'll gain more experience of throughout kind of F1, is knowing the information that each specific specialty would like when making a referral. So what I find is that each, certain specialties have a few standard questions that they need to know before they would accept a referral. And having these answers on the tip of your tongue is kind of worth it to avoid looking inept. So for example, psychiatry, if you're referring to the lies and psychiatry team, would want to know about suicidal ideation and whether the person has a psychiatric history. Or for example, are they known to a community mental health team? Renal might like to know, you know, creatinine and EGF-4, as well as their baselines, um, you know, dialysis regimes, among other information. And also cardiology, for example, might want to know about uh, in investigations and interventions. For example, have they had recent angiography, uh, previous stents in inserted, etc. I also think, especially when you're talking to other specialties, they can respond quite well if you pose questions in more of an educational way. So instead of asking for, you know, tricky scans to simply get reported and, you know, asking people to just do their do their jobs, it can, if you phrase them in such a way, for example, um, by looking at it as a learning opportunity, uh, they would respond better to it. So, if, you know, what you could say is, for my own learning, would you mind talking me through the scan? Because I don't have enough experience in interpreting it. And I find that people are a lot more receptive and helpful when you try and learn from their expertise rather than, you know, simply just asking and making requests of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, very good point. Talking about um, other specialties do make friends in other departments. Uh, it will make a difference to this, you know, daily task of uh, making a referral or getting a scan vetted. Talking to a friendly face if you are discussing the case in, in person or if you are discussing the, um, the case on the phone, knowing that there is somebody who holds you in some degree of esteem on the other side of the, of the phone will just remove the anxiety that you will have to demonstrate your competence and then you can just crack on with uh, the, the conversation rather than having all the pressure at the beginning. I think we could extend that point to kind of other healthcare professionals as well. Uh, for example, pharmacists, they have like such extensive knowledge. And I found them, you know, on my first couple of weeks working as an F1 to be really, really useful, you know, but you might not need them as much if you learn early on that the BNF can also be your best friend. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, yes. nurses on the wards, pharmacists, you know, kind of get a few friendly faces you know, in other specialties, but also in other kind of healthcare teams as well. Yeah, really absolutely. But make sure that you don't get on the wrong side of the ward manager. Uh, going, yeah, um, as you said, the PNF is your best friend. That's a, and that's a good point that I'm sure uh, medical students will already have got from their PSA. Going back to referrals, sometimes the, the, you know, the case discussion or the referral will still end up with a no. And that's part of the game. And it doesn't matter if it's somebody you don't know, you haven't met before, or it's somebody who is actually, um, you know, somebody you do know well. But, you know, the most important thing is, you know, it's always to, you know, to continue being polite and never to get upset. Go back to your seniors, discuss what happened, and, and say, I was meant to discuss with CT, the CT, and unfortunately they said that it wasn't required or... I wanted a gastro review and they said that, no, this is an inappropriate request. If you have the discussion with your seniors, you, you know, they might actually bring up that there were a couple of critical 
uh, chunks of information that you didn't bring up, or if it's more of a you know a problem of seniority, you know there are some consultants who will greatly appreciate a referral being made by a registrar or consultants rather than FY1. They might just want to take that discussion into their hands, and that will make your life easier indeed. Going back to phone calls, you, you will be carrying bleeps and you will, you will be receiving probably a great deal of them, usually from nursing colleagues. So it's really important, it's quite an art actually, to extract the information you need from nursing colleague in order to be able to accept or to decline the request to attend the ward to see a patient or do whatever job you're requested. And if you accept it, then you need to prior to be able to prioritize it in your busy jobs list. Can you yeah, guys yeah. think of any more points on this subject? Yeah, the way that you do this will vary depending on whether you've got paper notes in your hospital or electronic ones. If they're electronic, obviously you can access them from anywhere in the hospital. And in that case, you can take the beats while you're looking at the computer records. You can have a quick look through the latest ward round entries and the latest OBS. But if they're paper notes, you'll have to ask the nurse to give you all the details over the phone. Yeah, and I think it's important to always make sure you get the patient details. Um, so name, hospital number, ward, bed, and also like who is referring. Um, so that, you know, when you go to the ward, you have the name of the nurse who referred uh, the patient. So I think it's quite a good idea to ask for the latest OBS. Um, and this can really help with like prioritization, because if you see something that doesn't sound quite right, you know that, you know, that patient might need to be seen uh, more promptly. And, you know, you can also ask for other basic interventions to be done over the phone. So, for example, if you're called about a patient who's in chest pain, you know, because it might take you a couple of minutes to get to see the patient, you could ask for ECGs to be done in the you know interval time between when you get the phone call and when you arrive on the ward or you know if a patient is desaturated you could ask for the patient to be put on high flow oxygen so you can start thinking of simple interventions and investigations that could be done in advance of your arrival just to speed up the assessment yeah that's that's a good point a safety point on this it, it might happen that um, there are more on patients unwell at the same time. I, I've seen this with COVID. There are specific times of the day when it seems like more patients are more prone to desaturation, for example. So you might be attending a sick patient and you receive another call about a patient that does sound sick as well. So you cannot just delay it till later. And I think it's important to start some basic management before you actually get to see the patient. So if the patient is desaturating, make sure that we are stepping up in the level of oxygen we are giving to the patient before you get there. So tell the nurses, you know, if there is no COPD, no type 2 respiratory failure in the back in the background, just go up to 60% venturi or no rebreathing mask while you get there. It might take you 10, 20, 30 minutes to get there. And just remember to tell them that if they think that, you know, you are on your way, but it might take you a little bit of time if they think that the patient is going to crash. If they think that the patient looks peri-arrest, they should really be putting out a medical emergency or a crash call, despite the fact that the doctor on the way, uh, because in that way they can get immediate assistance. Okay, I think we've now covered the basics for when it comes to clinical practice. We, I think there are a couple more things we wanted to say. I think it's important that the new F1s know who they can talk to if they're stressed or worried or feeling down, particularly because we don't know how or when the COVID-19 crisis will be over. And I think it's kind of important to kind of recognise the different layers of support that are available. 
So firstly, you know, uh, for day-to-day -day, uh, kind of business and kind of just getting advice kind of informally, other F1s and juniors will be able to give you advice on what to do and how to get by on a daily basis. Um, you know, we're all here to support each other. And I found that, you know, having kind of junior around is really, really kind of a good support network and, you know, make really good friends on the board among other F1s and juniors. So that's really, really positive. But if things are getting a bit more serious, um, you know, one of the first protocols could be uh, your clinical supervisors. So it might not be the consultant you're working with on a day-to-day -day basis, but they should be ideally within your department and they can discuss kind of issues with you, uh, both kind of clinical or personal issues. And if you're having no luck in accessing your clinical supervisor, you can always discuss with your educational supervisor. Um, so this would be the person who would be responsible for kind of uh, your development, kind of from an educational point of view throughout the whole of your F1 year. Uh, and then above that, there would be the foundation training program director. Um, and, you know, you should have access to all of their names and emails if you need to contact them. And they have a kind of extensive experience of dealing with junior doctors. Yeah, some sites will also have like a designated consultant with a specific role as like the welfare and support coordinator for trainees, or they might have a, another job name, but similar sort of thing. And some will also have psychologists who can be accessed daily in person or by phone, especially during this COVID emergency that's going on at the moment. There's also the um, some national mental health resources for doctors. There's the practitioner health program that offers free mental health support and treatment for doctors and dentists. And there's the BMA wellbeing service as well that offers counselling and peer support. And you don't need to be a member to access that. And I think what I've found over the last couple of weeks in particular is that there's an extraordinary sense of camaraderie at the moment in that we're being joined on the wards from multiple different specialties, all working in general medicine and everyone's there to support each other. Uh, so actually, you know, it might be quite a good thing to start off in this environment. Uh, because you have that level of support because so many doctors in non-frontline roles have now been redeployed to inpatient activities. They're there to support you. You can. It's quite interesting seeing how different specialties would approach different things and having that expertise actually on the wards is really, really useful. Yeah, you know, it might actually be interesting to see whether the, these interim FY1s who start now will do better than average in August because actually the level of supervision and support is now much better than the usual because of the amount of doctors of the, you know, because of the sheer number of doctors we have now available. I would now like to touch upon the resources that the college makes available on its education portal as foundation doctors membership of the college is free for you guys, uh, which means you have free access to a variety of educational contents. Uh, apart from uh, you know all the previous activities, so even in medical updates or symposia from you know this year, last year, and so forth, and a variety of topics in medicine, there is a COVID nineteen talk section with uh, weekly updates exploring a variety of aspects of this disease, going from the experience in other countries, uh, Italy, the US, and so forth, uh, to making making prognostication and escalation plans to. Uh, treatment in intensive care and many more. I think we are running out of time, but uh, many thanks again to Gemma and David for the interesting points you have raised today. I hope this little podcast has given you the insight and insight into what make your life as an FY1 doctor massively easier, and hopefully it will make it more rewarding at this difficult time. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.